All right, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 is where we find ourselves today. If you are not there, um, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, there's these blue Bibles likely underneath the seat around you. In those Bibles, you can turn to page 998, and that'll bring you to our text. So I will uh, tell you that this, I'm wrestling with this sermon, uh, wrestling with this text personally. I, I am a, a political junkie. By that I mean, I listen to all that stuff. I take, I consume it in mass quantities. And I've had to wrestle through this text to try to figure out the meaning and then to put together a message to bring to you. And so I felt a little bit of, well, conviction, some, some conviction about my attitudes towards the lost. I think if you watch um, my attitudes toward the lost, towards my fellow citizens, towards those on the other side of the aisle. And if you watch all that stuff, you'll see there's a real uh, serious animosity and heavy tension and uh, anger, harshness. So I feel like I've probably got caught up in some of that in my own heart. And uh, I've been confronted by the words. So... I say that just to introduce it to you. I'm still working through it. I imagine I'll continue to work through it. But that's what the Word of God does. I trust it's doing that in your heart as well. And maybe it'll do that today for you as well, as you think on these things, even after uh, the sermon is done, hopefully. <laughs> so, a little review for you, beloved. After laying out a number of ethical instructions... Throughout chapter two, the Apostle Paul, at the end of chapter, at the end of that chapter, chapter two, specifically in verses eleven through fourteen, which we looked at previously, at the end of that chapter, in those verses, the Apostle Paul grounded or rooted his ethical instructions or his instructions concerning Christian conduct, or as Paul keeps referring to it as good works. He grounds it in the truth of God's saving grace. He roots it in that. This truth, beloved, God's saving grace, the truth of it, not only teaches the sinner the way of salvation, how to be saved, but it also teaches or instructs the sinner who has been saved by Christ or another way to refer to those people are as Christians. <laughs> it instructs them, it trains them, this saving grace of God, to live very differently than they lived before. That is, for them to consistently, joyfully, renounce or say no to their sin. And continually, zealously choose to live sensible, upright, and godly lives while eagerly waiting and looking for Christ to come again. That is the part we've already covered. Now, moving forward, at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul returns to the matter of laying out ethical instructions for the Christians in Crete. And the focus of the instructions at the beginning of chapter 3 is their behavior as earthly citizens. As earthly citizens. 
That is, as Christians, we learn in this section how they and we were to respond to and interact, in their case, with their pagan government and neighbors. Or, to say it another way, all those they interacted with who were still lost and enslaved to their sin. And we know that, and we know that that's what Paul is thinking about when he addresses these matters in these first two verses. We know that, that he's speaking of the lost and our interaction with them, both in their context, their pagan government and their pagan neighbors. We know that based on the context of the passage. We won't look at that ver- this verse today, but the verse that follows this section is verse 3. After Paul's last statement where he instructs Titus to remind the Cretan Christians of certain ethical things, and he says to remind them of this as well, that they show perfect courtesy toward all people, the all people there is not primarily the church, it is those outside the church, unbelievers, pagans. And we know that because then in verse 3, and you can look at it if you're there, you can drop down to verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish. And another translation says, For we too were once foolish. In other words, for we too were once like them. Who are the them? the people that Paul is now calling the church to show all perfect courtesy toward, along with, another, along with other items that we're going to look at. He goes on to say in verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's what we were as well. We'll get to that section next week. But this is his argument after he just laid out these ethical instructions concerning their treatment of unbelievers. Remember, we too were really messed up and bad and ugly and disgusting, morally speaking, ethically speaking. And then he says in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And then he goes on with some really wonderful truths that we'll look at next time. So I lay that out for you so that you know as we're looking at verses 1 and 2, he is talking about, he's thinking about their relationship, the church's relationship with the world, with their lost neighbor, with their pagan government, because that's what it was. Now, uh, we're not too far removed from that uh, in our own context, actually, in our own history. Um, Day by day, our, our government, at one level or another, becomes more pagan. And certainly, uh, our country is filled with unbelievers and those who are opposed to Christ and, for lack of a better word, pagans. Pagans. So, we should be able to understand this passage as it relates to us because it does relate to us perfectly. So, as a reminder, one more reminder before we look at these two verses, don't forget this as well. In all of this, in all of this instruction that he's giving to the church or churches through Titus there on Crete, Paul's overriding concern in all of this is an evangelistic concern. It's an evangelistic concern. Again, we've talked about this as his review. He is all about seeing all those whom Christ died for come to saving faith in the Lord. I mean, when he's in prison, he's writing his final letter to Timothy. He's awaiting his execution. He says in, in Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, I endure everything, everything I'm doing, all the suffering, all the persecutions, all the troubles, 
all the trials, all the labor, all the zealousness, all the good works, persevering in them, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also, and he's talking about the elect who have not yet professed faith in Christ, but he knows they're out there because God says they are out there. He knows God has a people. God is bringing those people to himself through the preaching of the gospel. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That was Paul's mission. That was his purpose in life, his primary purpose. And so because of his evangelistic concern, he is writing these things because he wants to see the gospel progress, advance, not be hindered in any way. He wants to, by these ethical instructions, make sure that any opponents of the gospel would be made to appear foolish in that their attack on those who are promoting the gospel would ultimately fall on deaf ears because it would be found to be groundless because they would look at these people and see these are wholesome people, these are kind people, these are morally good people. You're making these attacks on them, but it, it just doesn't stand up in light of what we can see with our own eyes. These are loving people. Even though we may disagree with them, your attacks don't hold any weight as we see their lives before us. He wants the life of Christians not to repel the unsaved because of their poor behavior, but instead attract the unsaved to the saving message of Christ as that message is properly worked out in their lives through the regular practice of good works. And as I've said before, we've got this wrong idea sometimes about the idea of good works, thinking good works, that's like me going to the mission field and, and doing something there. And certainly that's included, but back up a little bit, good works, as we see it here, as Paul keeps referring to it, is living a righteous life, saying no to sin, loving your wife, <laughs> loving your kids, serving Christ. Those are the good works that God has for you. It starts at your, in your home. It's in the church. It's in your communities where these good works are to be. You don't have to go, you don't have to get on a plane and travel all across the world to accomplish good works. They're there too as well, but it begins right here at home. In your own heart, as you say no to sin and yes to righteousness. So, with all of that, are you ready to look at the passage? <laughs> yes? All right, let's do it. Two verses. Remind them, Titus 3, verse 1 and 2, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Not a long passage, but to me, pretty heavy stuff. <laughs> the word remind, as you see there in our English translations at the beginning of verse 1, that informs us that what immediately follows is not new information to the Cretan Christians. And being expressed by Paul in the present tense in the Greek, it means that Paul wanted Titus to keep reminding them of these things or repeatedly putting these standards of behavior before them. Titus, keep calling to their minds what they already know, <laughs> these things. 
That's the idea. Why? Why would uh, Titus, or why would Paul call them to remind them of things they already know? Well, I think we're prone to amnesia. I don't know about you, but I don't know what it is. I can, there's certain things I can remember and come to mind quite frequently, but things that are maybe more important, especially spiritual things, wow, like the gospel and all the truths of the gospel and how I'm supposed to live as a Christian and how I'm supposed to respond to people and how I'm supposed to love people and all the specifics of that. Wow, seems I'm, I have a case of amnesia from time to time. So I need to be reminded how about you guys? Any of you prone to amnesia? Which is why I think it's a good practice, a holy practice to, to stay plugged in to your church and continue to be reminded of things that maybe you've heard before. But like as I said, we see this here. Remind them. Tell them again. And, and don't, not just once. Keep telling them. Keep telling them these things. It could be that we're prone to amnesia, could be old habits die hard, right? They're a new person in Christ. That means they were an old person outside of Christ with a particular set of characteristics. And probably a lot of them not very good, and it's, it takes time to break from old patterns, yeah? It takes time, and it, it takes hearing it again and again and again, and again, yeah? And again. Yeah, and again. It could also be temptations to do otherwise. You know, they're, they're a new person in Christ, but they live in a fallen world with a bunch of folks around them who are still enslaved to their sin, who have not yet, by the mercy of God, been set free. From that sin that they might live for him. And as a result, they live in such a way <laughs> that might cause that new person in Christ to want to do something they shouldn't do. You know? Go back to acting their old way. I'm going to fight fire with fire. I'm going to punch him in the face. That's what I'm going to do. Or something like that. You said that about me? Wait till you see what I say about you. Right? So, prone to amnesia, old habits die hard, temptations all around. Boy, we all need reminding on a regular basis of all the things that God has to say in his word. And this is why not only do we want you to plug in consistently to, to the services of the church and opportunities to gather together with his people, but also to regularly read your word and, and then read it again. And again, and again. So what is the first thing Titus was to remind them in relation to their earthly citizenship? What, what was it? It was to be submissive. <laughs> Another translation says, be subject. Be submissive, be subject. To who, beloved? To rulers and authorities. To rulers and authorities. Paul used these terms to refer to the various forms of human government. So what Paul is stating here is that when it comes to the governing authorities that one finds themselves under, the Christian is to willfully, not because they have been forced to, but willfully accept a position of submission. Or to put it another way, they are to, you are to, I am to, voluntarily live in subjection to their or our duly appointed rulers and authorities, which includes the rules and laws that are properly made by them and to the various obligations and responsibilities placed on them and us by the state. In regard to the various forms of human government that existed, they were to be, if you will, careful to maintain an attitude of submission. 
And what was true for them is no less true for us. And remember, their government was entirely pagan. They, they didn't have any Christian roots. Rome ruled. It ruled. And Rome was as pagan as pagan can be in their leadership. Of course, this is not the only place that this is spoken of about submitting to the governing authorities you can go to Romans 13, looking at verses 1 through 7. You can go to 1 Peter chapter 2, looking at verses 13 through 17. I have preached through both of those letters, so you can also find sermons in regard to those passages online. But looking back now at Titus 3.1, Paul says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, and then he says, to be obedient, to be obedient. Bottom line, this states the result and visible demonstration, as one writer puts it, of their attitude of submission. This is the visible result and demonstration of their attitude of submission. If I am voluntarily submitting myself to the governing authorities, then the way that works itself out is I obey them. I'm obedient. One commentator points out the Greek verb there, translated to be obedient, just one Greek verb, to be obedient expresses general conformity to the regulations of the civil authorities. Now, as we think about that, one, uh, one Bible commentator I was reading tried to make a little application to us so we can kind of think through how this works out in our own lives. And he says that the obedience of this nature or obedience to our rulers and authorities will concern our people when they for instance, try to build or repair buildings. And he puts in parentheses, including churches, which I find interesting. And I only find that interesting because I've heard stories of, sadly, of churches being built and people in the churches looking to bypass some of the requirements or obligations they have concerning building permits or rules. But they're not the only ones. It's just very sad that that occurs in that context. So he says, concerns our people when they try to build or repair buildings according to city codes or conduct business according to laws of commerce. And we all live in California life, so wow. Oh my goodness. I mean, that's, you know, I just feel my heart just rising up like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't think people should have to do. Or drive according to traffic laws. Love that one. Or run schools according to state standards. Or pay workers according to government regulations. Or pay taxes according to the laws of city, state, and nation. For people to subject themselves to civil authority, he says, according to Scripture, will require examination and correction of virtually every area of life. Boy, isn't that true? Because they've, they've dipped into every area of our life, haven't they? See, that's the other side of me coming out now. I can feel my political side coming out. But so be it. They have. I mean, we have a, a little bit different situation, right? I mean... If you don't like the laws of this particular state, you can move and find one that fits better with you. But wherever you are, you must obey. That's what Paul's saying. You are to obey. You are to make the choice to voluntarily subject yourself to such laws that you find yourself under. Now, beloved, what about a, a rule or a law, just as we're teased this out, that isn't sinful or requiring us to sin against God? Or I might add this, and I don't want to get into this whole big conversation, but a law that's not against the law, right? Because there are, maybe there might be times where an authority attempts to exercise authority he doesn't have. Because in particular, we are a, 
We live under the rule of law, and so all law or authority is delegated. It, it comes from that rule of law. No man is supposed to stand above it. It's delegated downward. And So, for instance, if a, if a police officer were to say, get out of your car and do 10 jumping jacks, he doesn't, he doesn't have authority to, to make that command of you. He has no authority. He, he has no law to rest that on. Um, so you wouldn't have to obey that law. You, dear officer, could you please point me to the law that says you have the right to make me get out of the car and do 10 jumping jacks? Of course, I'm being a little silly because I don't want to dive into a whole area of craziness right now, but you get the point. So I'm just saying, without getting into all that, because oftentimes we'll be like, yeah, but do they really have the right to do that? Well, even if you think someone doesn't have the right to do that, there's a law that says how we are to deal with that as well, so we should obey that law in addressing someone who's not holding up the law, okay? So we forget that sometimes, like, hey, he broke the law, so I get to. No, no, that's not how, that's not how it works, but let's just assume for the sake of the argument that uh, if there's a rule or a law that isn't sinful, so we've dealt with that, it's not requiring us to sin against God, and it's not against the law, but rather one that we just don't agree with or think to be unreasonable and or is inconvenient. Are we required as Christians to obey those as well? Or can we just ignore and disregard those? What do you think? Huh? What? Obey? Is that our practice? I'm not asking you to answer. I'm just asking you to ask yourself. See why I don't like this text? I mean, I don't mean I don't like it. I'm just saying I'm struggling with it. I'm being straight with you. You think pastors, oh, he's got everything figured out. Oh, no, he absolutely doesn't. Listen, listen I struggle with stuff too, and I can go off, I can go off course too. Huh. Not too far, because then I'm disqualified, and you'd have to remove me from the pulpit, but I can go off course too. I can get out of line in my heart, and so I, you know, I'm trusting the Word of God to do that work in me as well. But I wonder about you. What would you tell your children if they didn't agree with your rules or didn't like them? Oh, <laughs> you don't agree with that one. Oh, you think it's unreasonable. Okay. <laughs> oh, you find it to be inconvenient. <laughs> okay, well, then you don't have to do it, of course. I mean, that's that's the standard, <laughs> right? But let's, uh, let's ponder something else together. Why, why does Paul want the Cretan Christians to be reminded of their submission and obedience to human government, to their rulers and authorities, and remember, and remember his evangelistic concern? He wants to see no hindrances, unnecessary hindrances to the gospel. He wants to see it advance. He wants to see people drawn to Christ. He wants the church to thrive, okay? For this, not thrive like bigger buildings thrive in the sense of growing in Christ and leading people to Christ. You have to make all these qualifications now today, Thomas, you know, because it's so weird out there. Why? Well, one commentator suggested that Paul's apparent concern for the Christian's attitude toward the state may reflect the possibility that some Christians wrongly interpreted their allegiance to Christ as being contrary to any allegiance to the state. Okay, maybe. Like, hey, we belong to Christ, and Christ is king, and he is. He's coming to set up his rule and reign on the earth. So in the meantime, though, he has governing authorities, and you're to submit to them. You know, yeah, but they're pagan. Yeah, but there wasn't an exception clause. Yeah, but they they. But now I see they have they make laws that are not they're not those aren't I don't agree with those laws. Okay, but are they are they asking you to do something sinful? No, it's not necessarily sinful. I just I don't think it's right. I okay, obey. Remind them to obey. They serve Christ, they're looking and longing and waiting for his return where he will establish his righteous kingdom and set all straight. But meanwhile, 
Obey your rulers and authorities. It's possible. Uh, another writer says the most obvious reason that Paul would tell Titus to remind the Cretans to obey authorities is that he did not want the gospel to be identified with political agitation that would bring Christianity under suspicion as just being a counter-political movement. I think there's, there's, some, there's something there. In other words, the people start to ask as, as if they aren't obeying the rulers and authorities, right? They were before somewhat, but now all of a sudden, maybe because of their, their new identity in Christ, and they serve the king, and then all of a sudden they're, they're just not obeying. They might, government might start looking at them and asking questions. What is this movement about exactly, this Christian movement? Are they looking to overthrow the rulers and authorities? Are they looking to rise up a coup against us? What's going on exactly? Which, of course, would bring the almighty power of Rome against them. Not because they're doing good, but because they're doing something they shouldn't do, which is disobeying, refusing to submit to the rulers and authorities. Uh, You've got to remember always the tension that existed between Rome and the Jewish people. Um, Rome subdued, they took over, they were large and in charge, and the Jews were subservient to them, and they hated it, and they wanted to throw them off of them and establish their own kingdom and, and rule and reign again, and so there was always this tension between the Roman leadership and authorities and the Jewish people, and remember that Christianity is Jewish in its roots, the first large segment of the population that made up the church was Jewish. Uh, in case you forgot their, their leader, he's a Jew. Jesus, he's not a Gentile. He's not, a, he's not Roman. He wasn't pagan, he's a Jew. So if these gatherings, these, these gatherings that are growing all of a sudden begin to push back against their rulers and authorities or just refuse to do what they're being told to do or expected to do, that could create all kinds of unnecessary chaos for the church. And it has been throughout time one of the reasons that when the church submits itself to passages like this, that it has been able to move in and function for long periods of time in, in governments that are even anti-Christ because ultimately they're good citizens. They submit to the rulers and authorities. They do not stir up trouble. They do not try to overthrow those who are over them. And it's allowed the gospel to, to infiltrate and, and impact areas that it otherwise couldn't if it came in as an invader looking to overthrow the governmental system. I could say more about that, but I'm going to refrain myself. Both reasons are possible, certainly. I would add to those that Paul's instructions to remind them about their submission and obedience makes sense to me in light of our proclivity for resisting authority. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Proclivity is like a negative tendency, our bent. We are bent on, as human beings, resisting authority. No? No? Huh? Any of you have children? Did you have to train them to resist you? Did you? Did they learn it from TV? I mean, well, it supports it. It supports them in their rebellion. It affirms it. But the rebellion was already there. I would say also, especially authority that issues commands or laws that are disagreeable to us. <laughs> I mean, look, if you're telling your kid, giving them commands that they're good with, like, you know, go over there and pull out five donuts and eat them, all of them, right now, and make a mess. <laughs> what a good little child I have. What a good little child. 
It's the same with us, right? No, we give them things that are they're not they're just disagreeable to them. And we too are under laws and rules and obligations that sometimes we find disagreeable, inconvenient, not the way we would do it. So obey. Willingly offer up submission. I was thinking to myself as I thought through this, and I'm, like I told you, I'm just personally wrestling with, I wrestle wrestle with the text every week, just sometimes it's more penetrating to me. Sometimes I feel like, all right, I'm doing good, you know? I'm in line. Yes, thank you, God. And then I get to the sections like this, and I'm like, man, Lord, just come back, please. Seriously. I was thinking, why do people love dogs so much? At least in the United States. They love them. They love them. What would you say? Did someone say something? Well, that is where I was going. Thank you. Is that Chris? Thank you, brother. I was thinking, well, I was just trying to go through it. Well, they're loyal. Man. I mean, I'm speaking in general terms, right? You can, I think you understand. They're loyal. They're, uh, they seem to be always happy to see you. I mean, no matter what, Right? And they are more often than not quite obedient. Uh, they, they habitually obey their master. I mean, there's bad dogs, I get it. But generally speaking, a little bit of training. Um, and, and they will obey their master, I would say, at pretty much any time, uh, doing almost anything that their master, their master commands them. I mean, middle of the night, it doesn't matter raining and it doesn't it doesn't matter dog hasn't slept in 10 it doesn't matter like the master speaks and they're like what and what else what else do you want me to do huh what else what else you're like man i think and we see that and we see the the, i I, i'm just i'm kind of talking out loud with you right now but i see like you see like wow and we say what a good dog what a good dog good dog and obedient what a good dog uh, in this way, human beings are definitely not like dogs. We're more like cats. I am <laughs> uh, not going to say anything. I'm not going to comment on that. Because I'll get in trouble. I will get in trouble. But we could learn something from man's best friend. Think about that. That's how we refer to the man's best friend. We need to learn to be, you know, God's best friend, loyal, happy to see him, to know him, and habitually obedient to him, and as a result, obedient to his word. The fallen flesh inclines us really to want to be the king of our own kingdoms, right? That's what it does, to worship ourselves. Uh, One writer calls it the kingdom of self. That's, that's how sin twists us. And beloved, saved we are if we're putting our faith and trust in Christ, for sure. But that saving work is still working itself out. It has not yet completed. That happens later on in the state of glorification. I'm longing, looking, crying out for that. But meanwhile, we're wrestling, if we are Christians, we're wrestling with this fallenness that's still a part of us, the selfishness, the self-centeredness, this kingdom of self. Well, I better move on, but let's look back to the text. We see the next command in this list, and again, I'm I'm not looking to probe and try to figure out, work out all the details for you. I'm just trusting that as you hear the word of God and and, um, somewhat of an explanation concerning it, that the Holy Spirit that resides in you, who are his, um, will convict you and open your eyes to where you're off base, where you're not in line with the word of God, and will bring to you repentance. That's what I'm trusting in my own heart and life 
be ready, he says, for every good work. Remind them, be submissive, be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. One writer says, prepared and willing they are to be to participate in activities that promote the welfare of the community. These, these next ones will be quick. We'll, we'll wrap it up. Prepared and willing to participate in activities that promote the welfare of the community, the community that one finds themselves living in as citizens of this earth, in their cities, in their neighborhoods, in their communities. Commentator says this extends the Christian responsibilities from a, from a mere passive posture, obeying laws. You know, you're, just, be, you're being told what to do. You just obey the laws. It extends it now from a passive posture to an active one, a positive involvement in the society. To be a positive impact on the society. I mean, I was just thinking, you know, as I was, you know, as I imagine, like I do every time, me sharing these thoughts with you and, and what your thoughts might be. I try to imagine those things so that I can attempt to address them. But I was thinking, I can imagine someone saying, are you kidding me? I am just trying to get through a day or a week. I'm just doing my best to survive my 8 to 5 or 7 to 10 or and deal with the kids, and my wife, or my husband, and all the other things I have to do. And now, I'm supposed to be ready for every good work. I'm supposed to be looking to be a, a, a positive impact in, in my neighborhood or in my society as I have opportunity. Yes. So, I get that. I feel that. I do. I feel it as well. Um, but here's a question I have. Are we only supposed to do things that are easy? That come easily to us? Is that the Christian life? Like, so here, you come into Christ, and Christ's like, all right, look, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that doesn't require you to sacrifice. I'm not going to ask you anything that doesn't stretch you to the end of yourself. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask you to do things that you've got time to do. You don't even have to try to find time for it. You just, it's right there. I'm going to ask you to do things that come very easily to you. It doesn't, doesn't bother you. doesn't make you feel uncomfortable. I'm not going to ask you to do any of those things. Is that the Christian life? I just don't see that. I see the exact opposite. Like, are you kidding? <laughs> That's my flesh talking to the Lord. <laughs> and then being slapped down, you know what I mean? By like, are you kidding? Like, yeah, so... I think in all of this, as we look at these things, I think it is designed to bring us to the end of ourselves and to then look to Christ and find in him and in the spirit that he has given us the strength, the ability to, to make sacrifices for others, to, to die to self. I don't want to do that! It doesn't serve me! To die to self to live for the good of others. It's all impossible apart from Christ, man. That's the whole point. If you think, hey, wait a minute, this is hard. Yes, it's meant to be. I mean, that's how real things get accomplished in the world, right? They're usually really hard. You think marriage is easy, folks? Holy moly, it's hard. <laughs> I mean, okay, You know what I mean. <laughs> Listen, I, yeah. No personal commentary right now. It's, it's uh, yeah, two sinners in close contact with each other, both living for themselves or tempted to. Yeah. And marriage is, again, one of those beautiful things that God uses to bring you to the end of yourself. <laughs> Where you finally say, I'm, I surrender, I can't do this, I can't do this. And he says, yeah, you can't do it. You got to look to me, you got to trust in me, you got to worship me with all your heart. All right? So it's, it's, it's all across the board like that. So when you see this, be ready for every good work. 
Don't back away. Lean in. In the strength of Christ, lean in. Lord, open my eyes to, to ways that I could fulfill this, that I, I could, because this is part of being zealous for good works. Open my eyes, Lord. And when opened and when I see them, help me not to turn away or make excuses. You see what I'm saying? Like, am I the best? Am I really a good neighbor? Sometimes, but maybe not as good as I could be. Not even maybe. I'm not even, I'm going to take it away. I'm not as good of a neighbor as I can be. I know that. I know that. And I've been pressed with that, even just as reading through this text. So one writer says, Paul, Paul here is not speaking of reluctantly doing what we know we should do in society, but of willingly and sincerely being ready and prepared to perform every good deed toward the people around us that we have opportunity to do. He is referring to a sincere, loving eagerness to serve others, no matter how hostile the society around us may be, we are to be good to the people in it whose lives intersect with ours. And so I was like, ah. I think I watched too much news. Because it, I feel, even in my own heart, just this, you're the enemy. I want to crush you. <laughs> and that then spills over, as I, in myself, I'm just talking about myself, get caught up in that, spills over into just how I look at all people. Not you, for the most part. Not you. <laughs> no, it's different. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I'll lay down for you. But, you know, the other people. <laughs> you know, the people I'm supposed to be reaching with the gospel? Those pagans? Those particular political party? Those progressives? With all their stuff that makes me so angry? But they're still dead in their sin. And among them, and why shouldn't I think this? Among them may be, certainly could be the elect of God. And God hasn't yet opened their eyes, but the means that God uses is me and you living out the gospel and making it known and being zealous for good works and loving, even when not loved. And Golly, guys. Galatians 6.10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Certainly. Like I said, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, go to the limit. There, is, there should be no limit what I would do for you or you should do for each other. But even to those outside of the faith, who are yet to have embraced Christ and may even in their speech and in behavior demonstrate themselves to be opposed to the very one I love and who has saved me. I'm to do them good. We're going to end there and uh, I will pick it back up with speak evil of no one. And if you thought the government stuff was hard, Be interesting if they put that into our house and our Congress. You know, they're, they're looking as quickly as they can to remove any references to Scripture or to God, and that's a mistake. Speak evil of no one. Man, they might have to shut up for a couple hours then, just trying to figure out what they might say. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And uh, we just pray that it would have its way with us, Father. We want, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that it would have its way with us, that it would uh, work us over as it needs to, Father. Your word is a gift. 
when we stray, when we are out of bounds, when we are on the wrong road. It is not a good thing. It dishonors you. It works against your purposes. It diminishes your glory. And it brings unnecessary trouble for us. It moves us in the wrong direction, further away from where we're supposed to be. In your light, in your righteousness, fighting sin, denying it, refusing it, it, uh, allowing it to have a place in our hearts. So, Father, help us. Help us to, to truly believe your words, to know that they are true, to remember who you are. You are good. You are merciful. You are gracious. You are just. You are righteous. And therefore, so are all your commands. Help us to remember these things, Father, that we might embrace them. And Lord, make us sensitive to how we've sinned against your word, even this word, in these two verses. Two verses. Make us sensitive, Father. Open our eyes that we might flee from all that is unrighteous in our life and begin to walk in the way that you would have for us. That we might make the gospel known not only in telling others about Christ, but in living out the power of the gospel in transformed lives. Lives that can only be explained as a work of the Spirit of God. As a work of Jesus Christ in setting us free, truly free, from the power and tyranny of sin. Oh, we need you. Oh, we need you. In Christ's name, amen.